So welcome back to another episode of Most Important. I'm your host, Sunil Singhvi, and on this week's episode, we've got the incredible author, Lindsay Kelk. Lindsay's written over 15 novels. She's been translated into 22 languages. She runs a podcast. She runs a blog. She's a wrestling expert. She's a beauty expert. She's an also an all-round wonderful person. It's so exciting to have her on the show. I can't wait for you to find out what Lindsay Kelk finds most important. I want to go right back to the beginning, because mm-hmm. I think that's where you should always start. It's a good idea. Um, how long did you want to be a writer before you first put pen to paper for what eventually became the first novel? I have honestly wanted to be a writer for my whole life, as long as I can remember. And there is evidence. I can back this up. In the style of YouTube, I have receipts. <laughs> um, I got it. Um, I I learned to read when I was really little. My mum, being the wonderful woman that she was, didn't trust the school system. So she taught me to read before I went to school, which at the time I was like, oh, I want to watch telly. But now I'm like, oh, fair play. Um, so I learned to read before I went to school. So when I got to school and everyone else was learning the early stuff, the teachers didn't really know what to do. So they would just put me in a corner with books. And I was in infant school and I had read all the books that they had. Uh, Favourite was Mr. Wolf's Week. That was the best. Um, And then I just, so I just started writing my own stories because I didn't know what else to do. Because it was reading time, but I'd read everything. Uh, And I used to write the series. I was very ahead of the curve. I used to write a series about a superhero teddy bear called Talina, uh, who had like a witch nemesis, who was also a female teddy bear. Uh, and then she retired when she had triplets because <laughs> it was the 80s and you had to you had finish to retire the job then. in the 80s when you had triplets. <laughs> These days you'd be like, I'm putting them in childcare, are you, keep going. Are you going to bring her back? I, honestly, I would love to because I do feel like there's a market for her. Um, but she was great. Yeah, she, it was, I think it was very heavily influenced by Super Ted. Yeah, actually. She was like gender flipped Super Ted. Thinking about the timeline, that yeah. probably, yeah. there's probably like a copyright issue. It, well, now it would just be a gender reversal and it would be very cool. Oh, yes. Yeah. It'd be a real thing. <laughs> was Super Ted knowingly male, though? I don't. I don't know. I'm imposing gender constructs upon Super Ted. He may not have identified as either. I don't know. Mm. He had a masculine-sounding voice. He presented as a boy bear. He presented. But as a I boy don't know bear. as what he identified. I live in LA. I'm very sensitive. Yeah, there was. I remember vividly. There was an episode where the secret word got told to someone else, <gasps> and then they became the super version of themselves. <laughs> and I've always thought to myself. I'd love to know what the word was. I know. It's like lost in translation, but not. Yeah. Like, what were they saying? What were they saying? I know. I want a spotty man too. He just was seemed like a really good sort. Everyone needs a spotty man in their life. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to run through some of the most important things. Yes. And I understand, and the construct of the show acknowledges the fact that anything you say today may not be true tomorrow. <laughs> Thank goodness. Good. Because <laughs> uh, I do change my mind. And I'm aware that I'm going to ask you some... Uh, and I've given you a heads up on some of them. And some of them yes. I'm going to just fire in. Excellent. And just see what your instant reaction is. How exciting. Um, but I wanted to start with most important possession. Most important possession. Uh, that's a relatively easy one, even though I love stuff. And I've got loads of it. It's my favourite thing to do. Uh, but it's my grandmother's wedding ring, uh, which I always wear. Uh, and I was given it when she passed away. Um, and it was one of those weird things. That I, it had never occurred to me. I'd never thought about it. I used to see it. I saw it every day. I saw it every day when I was growing up, and I saw that ring every day. And Every day on her hand? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she, my I have my mum and my sister, obviously, she had two daughters, so I assumed one of them. I, don't, I didn't even think about it. Do you bury people with their wedding rings? Do you give them away? I don't know. Uh, but I guess... 
she gave it to my mum and then my mum actually passed away six months later. But because she knew she was ill, my mum just gave it straight to me. And it was just one of those real, like, massive moments where I'm not going to cry. But it was one of those big things where it made me very aware of my mortality and my mum that she was sick and that I just lost my nan as well. And it was just a huge thing. But then also this really beautiful thing that it was what my granddad had given her when they got married. And they were so happy all their life. And they had just the nicest relationship. And they they always made me laugh. Um, so the fact that I have that ring makes me really happy. And in terms of a possession, do you find yourself like t- moments when you're down? Do you find yourself like twiddling it? Do you I think do. of it? Yeah, I, I worry it. I worry the ring. I believe it's, I just mess with it. Yeah. Um, and I worry because I lift weights now. Uh, and when I pick up a barbell, I'm like, am I squishing the ring? Which you never thought I'd have to worry about. But uh, I can't take it off because it was too small. She was a much smaller lady than I, but I forced it on and now it's on forever. So moving on from squishing the ring, powerlifting? Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, partly because I've always been lazy and I hate exercising. And I thought only exercise was cardio. And then I put my back out like an old lady and um, I went to a gym and said, I've put my back out (laughs) by doing exercise as well, which is the most embarrassing thing. What do I do? And they said, have you ever lifted weights? And I said, no, because I am not John Cena. And they said, you say that? Come on, give it a try. Uh, And I just love it. I loved it so much straight away. Um, And suddenly I could lift my own suitcases and carry lots of shopping and just really weird stuff that I'd never thought about just became much easier and I am all strong now. Are <laughs> you? Great. Yeah. And are you like how how into it are you? Are you buying like the right equipment, like, the outfits? The I mean I love it as we've established I love buying things uh, <laughs> so I have gym gear. I don't it's not I'm not like not into it competitively I know a right. lot of amazing women who are. Uh, I don't have the time and I don't have I, I'm just not doing it. Uh, I could if I wanted to, I'm sure. But I go three times a week, maybe. Wow. Uh, and mix up between um, deadlifts and back squats. And I love a bit of a kettlebell. Love a bit of a kettlebell, me. <laughs> Uh, so yeah I, I used to wear the little gloves but then my trainer at the gym was like stop wearing the little gloves because we actually laugh at the people that wear the little gloves so now I've got delightful calluses which oh is wow romantic is it, is it a bit soft to wear the gloves yeah apparently I was like, but they're dead good and I was really pleased with them like no I know but they are a bit nesh um, so I guess it's the LA version of being nesh wow <laughs> it's like wearing a coat out in Sheffield <laughs> You can't do it. Exactly. I, I can actually, I can relate to the, the hurting yourself whilst doing exercise because I never exercise because I find it tedious. And even though I'm falling <laughs> apart at the seams, I still maintain, well, you know, you, everyone's got to go somehow. Um, I did, however, go to a cycle, not a cycle class, like a boot camp type thing uh, okay. where you had to go between different things. And oh, no. there was a, our 82 year old neighbor was mm. like two down from me, like running rings around me. Like it was full blown embarrassing how yeah. impressive Ruby was. And whilst I was distracted by how impressive Ruby was and I was watching her like in full flow, I fell off an exercise bike <laughs> and no. broke a bone I'm in my foot. with you. That <laughs> like, sounds incredibly painful. Like stationary. Yeah. Like there was I've just got no a spin, way. I've got a spin scar. If that helps. I was at, I did a spin class once and um, my foot came off the pedal and the pedal whacked me in the shin. And because you're so full of adrenaline, because I hate spin, I hate it. But I was like, I'm fine, we'll just carry on. And then I looked down and my leg was just gushing with blood because your blood's pumping so fast. So it was just 
pouring out and the instructor is just like I feel like my gate to one could stop um, <laughs> it was in America and I hobble out with it just gushing down my leg wow oh, they asked you to yeah, leave yeah they have a big scar yeah yeah in fairness I was like hemorrhaging out all over <laughs> the spin class wow it's not very solely or likely where were you originally born I was originally born in uh, Doncaster South right. Yorkshire um, I lived in a little mining village outside of there called Harworth and then your work and heart took you to New York? Yes. And then yep. from New York to LA? Yes. But I want to ask you, what's the most important place in your life? Most important place is New York. Definitely New York. Uh, I lived in my village. I went to uni in Nottingham. Then I moved to London. And I all I knew was when I was growing up, I wanted to be somewhere bigger. Uh, it was a really small village. It was like 7,000 people at the time. Everyone knew everyone. I was never me. It was always my granddad's granddaughter or like Trevor's lass or Janice's daughter. You know, you ne- I was never myself. And everyone did what their parents did. We all drank in the same pubs as our parents. It was just a very small, beautifully close and, and take care of each other community. But it, it, I needed to get out of it, basically, which sounds terrible. Um, but yeah, I got to uni and through, I did a, a, work, a work experience place at a toy magazine while I was at uni. And that helped me make connections that got me my first job in London. Loved London, but just never really felt at home in London. And maybe because I'd always, I always worked out just outside, so I worked in Richmond, I worked in Wimbledon, worked in Hammersmith, and I lived in the suburbs. So I never really mm. experienced fully London. And you know how it is when you're early 20s and you're broke and you've got no money anyway. And, yep. and I was not having a nice time. And then I was asked to go to New York for work. I was working at HarperCollins Children's Books um, as an editor in the children's team. I think I was only an assistant. I was an editorial assistant at this time. And my boss had an accident a couple of days. She was fine. But she had an accident a couple of days before New York licensing fair. I just couldn't go. And someone had to go and sit in the meetings. Like We had to send someone to be in the meetings. So they sent me. And I was 26, maybe 25, 25, I think, and broke like never been to New York, had only been to Texas where my aunt had lived for a hot minute because my uncle was in the Air Force and Vegas when I was 21. Sure. So I have no idea what New York, New York is, no idea what to expect apart from all the books and the movies and the TV shows. Terrified. No money. <laughs> One maxed out credit card thing. Like, hope for the best. They gave me, I think, $500 cash for this week in New York. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I'm rich. Um, and then I got there and... Uh, the hotel reservation hadn't gone through so I turn up at this really fancy hotel in Manhattan with nowhere to stay we had to call my boss in England at two in the morning or whatever stupid o'clock it was and get her to drive to the office and fax through her American Express it was like the mid-2000s this wasn't the past but it felt awful I was terrified I'm like I'm gonna sleep on the floor I don't know what I'm gonna do this is the worst and then after that I went and bought a subway, went and bought a metro card for the subway because everyone said, just use the subway. (laughs) Genius. No idea where I am, where I'm going. Didn't have a phone with like GPS or maps or anything. But I just got on the subway and took myself off and around New York and just immediately knew. It was like when people say about meeting your soulmate, you fall in love, you'll just know. And I just knew. And I just couldn't express it, couldn't put it into words, just wanted to be in that city so badly. Mm. And from that trip on, that was my only goal, was to get back out there. And um, My company had a New York office, but inter-office transfers weren't really a thing. So I took every opportunity to work with the US office, took every opportunity to get on any projects that meant 
being in the States, working with the States. If I had to stay late, if I had to come in early, I didn't care. I just wanted to be there so that they would know I was good and they would somehow snap me up. Uh, and eventually they did. They The New York team created a role and um, offered it to me. And that's how I got out there. And everyone, my mom was like, you'll regret it so far. I know you want to go, but it's too far away. And everyone's like, oh, you know, you've, you've never lived outside of London, blah, blah, blah. Like everyone thought it, it would break my heart because I'm like, yeah, you love it when you go and visit. But it's different when you live there. It's different when you live there. You're not on holiday anymore. But from that first day, I remember walking down the street, listening to my iPod on my way to the subway to get to work. And it just, it just was home. I just, yeah. it just felt every part of me felt right, uh, and I knew from that day I was not coming back. <laughs> that was it. I think uh, I was in, I was in New York last year, and I maintain it's the biggest regret of my life having not lived really? there. Really, I think hard. it's so, it's such a magic place, and I love yeah. London. I've lived in London a great yeah, part. Yeah, me of my too. Life. I love London. But now. there's something about New York. I think if you could be in New York in your twenties. With a little bit of money in yes, your pocket. Yes. I think without a little bit of money, it's a hard it's a, oh, place. Oh, it's an incredibly hard place to be. And I got there at exactly the right time in the self. Everything happens for a reason. But I was 28, nearly 29. I had this job that I knew I was going to love, which gave me a visa for a year. And I just published my first book. And I was very sensible with money back then. And like, I had all my money saved up for because I hadn't touched the money that I'd got for the book deal because I was terrified of touching it because I still didn't believe this was actually going to be a thing. So I was financially secure. I was single. I was in my late 20s. I had an accent. The city's mine. <laughs> <laughs> the city was mine for the taking. It was summer. I moved there in July. And it was just that first six months were the single greatest six months of my entire I mean it's impossible to say because the whole time was the whole trip was amazing but for just six straight months I don't remember feeling anything other than like complete joy and optimism and knowing I was right it just was beyond telling of how fantastic it was at some point though you left New York I did I did was it in search Stupid of sun? Boys. Yeah, no, sadly, I hate sun. I'm not a sun person. So it's like the worst place I could have ever gone to live. No, I was in New York for six and a half years and um, I went out to LA a few times every so often to visit friends over there. And because it's so much closer, you, you kind of got to when you're yeah. there. It's like when people move to England and travel all over Europe because you got to, it's right there. So I went out to LA quite a lot and I met my now fiance. I am unfianced, which is so weird. Uh, but yes, we met um, at m our mutual friend's Super Bowl party, the most American nice. way that two humans ever met. Um, and yeah, we ended up dating and we did the long distance thing. And he works in TV. He's a TV editor. So there wasn't as much opportunity for him back in New York, whereas obviously as a writer, I can pick up and go anywhere. And I'd been in New York six and a half years uh, as much as I loved it. My, as I said, I just lost my nan and my mom and then my other nan all in the space of a year. Mm. So that was a wild ride. Yeah. Uh, and it really just felt like maybe it's time to have a look at something else. Yeah. Genuinely didn't think I would say. Genuinely just thought I was going to go do a year would mess up this relationship like all of the others <laughs> and then would just come home yeah uh, and that's four and a half years ago wow so I, I love LA I do it's a fantastic place to live but New York is the most important place it's the most inspirational it's the most motivational going back to New York is like plugging myself into a battery charger I want to ask and it's a difficult one but most important decision you've ever made the most important oh it's, it's really tough because there are a few um, probably the most important one 
was deciding to move to New York because it wasn't an easy as much as I'm saying now but I'm saying that with the hindsight of 10 years of amazing experiences the, the decision to go was a big one and I thought it would be really easy right up until it wasn't um so that was a huge one because it t- completely changed my life and I was giving up a really successful career I was giving up all my friends and family I, I mean I literally went to New York knowing two people and they were both friends I'd made that lived there, that I were in my company on the other side. So while we were friends, like we weren't hang out together, talk to each other, know where all the bodies are buried friends. They yeah. were just nice people I knew who I would get drinks with while I stayed there. So I really went knowing nothing. I went not knowing if the job would last, and, and it didn't. <laughs> the job that I went to do after a year, they killed the project, so that oh. was fun. Uh, and I went not knowing if my books would work out. I moved about three weeks after, two weeks after I Heart New York came out. So I didn't, I went knowing literally nothing. Um, one thing that I am fascinated about mm-hmm. um, and that I've been really enjoying hearing people when we've been doing the podcast um, most important mistake. Now, I think there is, there's like loads of weight that people put in mistakes and stuff. But uh, from my own experience, mistakes are the bits that make everything else right. Yeah. Those are the bits that give you the grounding for everything else. So, yeah. um, Lindsay, your, your biggest mistake. When I was working at HarperCollins in the children's team, I was looking after a series of books. And we... My, one of my jobs as editor, obviously, was to check all the details. And, and we got these files in from the US, and then we had to change them, anglicize them, which was a super fun job, actually. Because, you know, in America, they call apple juice cider, apple cider. And yeah. I had these children's books. And this was not the mistake, but there were those of Mary-Kate and Ashley books where they were on the beach drinking cider. Yeah, they were. And we got all these letters <laughs> from parents. And I'm like, oh, my God, we didn't know, because we were just publishing them. So then I had to implement an anglicization policy. So that was fun. Uh, but there was another series of books. And... Um, we sent one of the books to print with the wrong title on the spine, which I know, I know. <gasps> it came in, the, the first copies came in and we we sent like six on one day and we were really busy and they were really low priority and I'm making excuses even now, but ultimately we just, I didn't check it and four other people were supposed to look at it, but ultimately it was my book to check and I printed it with the wrong spine. But I just remember sitting there thinking, right, you've got to go and tell someone, you've got to go and tell someone, you've got to go and tell someone. And I went to tell my I went to the head of sales first because I hated my boss. Um, so I went to head of sales because <laughs> I'm like, she's actually going to be the one that's furious because she's going to miss her stock day if we reprint it. And I went upstairs and I was like, oh my God, Caroline, this book's come in. I've got the wrong spine. And she looked at it and she went, it's like the 10th one this week. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I, but I had made it such a big deal and I had made it all about me and I had made it so problematic when the reality was in this instance I'd made the problem bigger than it was by sitting and freaking out about it instead of going and seeking help. And if I had just gone straight away and dealt with it, I I mean, I'm saying like I sat there, I sat there for hours doing other stuff, but thinking about this book and trying to work out how I could fix it on my own, what I could do if I could offer to pay for the reprint. You know, I was like, how do I do it? How do I do it? Yeah, I was like, I'll go around Waterstones and sticker everything. Do I sticker them? Do we reprint them? What do we do? And in the end, they just didn't care. They were like, these books are like four copies. Shut up, whatever. It's no big deal. But I just remember sitting there. It was that feeling of complete dread and complete certainty that I just ruined my entire life in that one little moment. And that, that was just such a learning to know that mistakes get made yeah, and it's very rare that that mistake is going to cost you as much as you think it is. 
I'm hoping this might be a happier one, Ooh. but it might not be. Yay. So who knows? <laughs> uh, most important memory. Oh, God. Yeah, I thought about these and they were all really sad. Uh, <laughs> I said it really might be happier. <laughs> oh, God. I'm trying to think of a happy one now. Um, there is. I have a really, 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 really good memory for events not times or faces or names or places can't remember anyone's name ever can't remember where i'm supposed to be ever but i can remember word for word conversations that happened back to being little uh and one i don't know if it's the most important one but it's the one that comes up and is used the most often against my brother who isn't (laughs) listening because i know him uh but when we were little we went on holiday and my brother the muso who was very high standards of all things, uh, was arguing with my dad. And I remember it so clearly. We were on holiday in Menorca. We had rented a private villa, which was like a huge deal. All the family had gone in on it because my brother had had an operation that year. Uh, so we were like, let's go away and just have like a little private place. Let's stay in a hotel and like let him recuperate on this holiday. And I remember laying in this pool on a lilo, <laughs> staring at the two of them, bickering like children. My adult father and my like 12-year-old brother arguing over who was better, New Order or Bross. And my brother, swear until he was blue in the face, this never happened. <laughs> and I'm like, how on earth would I have made this up? How could I have just created this bizarre memory? And I remember it so clearly and my dad was just laughing in his face and just laughing and be like one day you're gonna thank me and for making you listen clear, to good music to be clear my dad was down on the new order side. right <laughs> i will give him his case. due my dad had excellent taste in music in the 80s i grew up listening to a lot of like new order roxy music um cool stuff that worried my mother because uh, she didn't think Human League should be... Human League's Dare shouldn't be the first album a child learns. <laughs> but it's too late for that, Janice. Um, but yeah, my brother apparently just really loved Bross. And wow. he still swears this never happened. And I'm not having it. It definitely happened. Definitely happened. Definitely but, happened. But it's one of those things you couldn't... I mean, maybe maybe a little bit of heat stroke, but almost impossible to have made that up, No, right? there's no way. I mean, maybe I could have got the bands wrong, but No. I didn't. I just did not. I, they were stood on the lawn. I was in the pool. They were arguing. My dad was laughing. And there was like just my little older brother just going mental at my dad that he was not having it, that they were not as good as New Order. That's incredible. I, so great. I'm the opposite. I can't remember any conversations. I can't remember what I've said. <laughs> but I'm pretty good on dates. And we've got this ongoing family argument about um, going to Disneyland. So we went to Disneyland when I was a kid and it was a massive thing because we didn't really go overseas. Yeah. Like that was the thing other families did. We didn't really go overseas. Um, And I I remember it really vividly. And I was talking about going to Universal Studios and how amazing it was to go on this Star Wars ride. And my mum said, you couldn't possibly remember it. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) She was like, well, you were three. Oh, I think you'll find mother. Mum, I was was 11. (laughs) She was like, no, you were were three. You were in a pushchair. And I was like... Mama, <laughs> like, I can tell you I was 11 different. because I brought home a ter- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle who wouldn't have been thought of for another six years. Like, and I had a knockoff one. It wasn't an original. That's amazing. So like, I've got this. But she swears to this day, she was like, you were three. And I was like, I 
definitely got a picture where I'm about four foot. Yeah, you so are a very been, tall toddler. And bearing in mind, I'm now only five foot. Like <laughs> It would have been an extraordinary <laughs> thing to have been, you know, that oh, height at that age. That's amazing. Um, Next on my list, piece of advice. Piece of advice. What's um, the most important piece of advice you've ever received? The most important piece of advice I've ever received is probably, in general, it uh, was one of my first bosses who at HarperCollins when I came in without a clue what I was doing, just wanted to be there so badly, took this editorial assistant, left PR where I was actually making decent money, had just been promoted, and took this terrible editorial assistant job for no money and just sat there every day going, what have I done? Um, until it, things started to pan out. Um, but I remember not having a clue and I had to go to this meeting and present in this meeting and my boss gave me the full fake it till you make it speech. And that seemed ridiculous to me. Like, no, that's the opposite of what I've always been told. Don't make things up, Lindsay, you little liar. Um, <laughs> even though now I make things up for a living. So yes, it's fantastic. But that's different. It is. I'm using my powers for good. Uh, but yeah, I remember her just being like, just, just pretend you know what you're doing, and then eventually you'll know what you're doing. And uh, that was really important, and it was true. It is true. I don't. You shouldn't tell lies. But if you act as though you know what you're doing, people will believe that you know what you're doing, and eventually. You will believe that you know what you're doing and it all comes full circle because it turns out most of the time you actually do know what you're doing. You just distrust yourself. Uh, so that one definitely. And then when it came to writing, I had an amazing writing tutor. I studied creative writing at uni at Nottingham Trent as part of my degree. And I had an incredible teacher called Graham Joyce who has sadly passed away now. He's a science fiction fantasy writer. He was incredible. And he was so helpful. There are so many things that I still do to this day that he taught us. I remember him telling us a story about when he was a junior reporter. People have suggested to me since this is not his story and that it came from somewhere else. Uh, but I don't care. I'm, accredi I'm crediting it to him because he told me. Maybe he was faking it till he made it. I can't say. But he told us a story about when he was a junior reporter and um, he had to go out and write the story. He was interning with someone or shadowing someone and they went to write the story about a car crash. And when they got there, it turned out there actually wasn't much of a story. It was a nasty wreck, but no one was hurt and nothing had been damaged. It was just a couple of nasty banged up cars. So the, the guy he was with went to a news agent across the street, bought a teddy bear trod on it dirtied it off a bit and threw it in the crash <laughs> yeah and he was like and then, he, then he took the photo wow and he's like now we have a photo so we don't really need the story because we've got the photo and he always called it throw the teddy in the crash so when he said if you're writing and it's not where you need it to be you throw the teddy in the crash work out what it is what's what's missing what can you do to amp up the tension what can you do to keep the clock ticking what can you do to make this matter uh, and I just will never forget it <laughs> I'm like, why would you do that? That's horrible. But I was 19 and thought that was the worst thing ever. Now at 38, I'm like, yes, yes. genius, throw that teddy in that crash. Yes. Do you find yourself wandering around trying to noodle that next bit of the book, just saying, yeah. I need to throw the teddy yeah. into the car crash? I do still do it, yeah. I'll, I'll look at a scene and I... It's often scenes that I've been looking forward to writing or things that I've been excited about that um, are very planned because I'm very much a, you're a pantser or a plotter, and I'm a pantser. Like, I write by the seat of my pants. I don't know why I had to do that in no. the accent. Well, I, I feel like It's pants, a big American thing, a pantser or a plotter. Um, and I make things up as so I go, I'm not very good at plotting ahead. Uh, and it's the things that I've been excited to write, set pieces. It's, it just doesn't work, and I don't know why. Mm. And I do have to do that sometimes you're like oh it just it needs something kicked in it needs something to ratchet up the tension or something needs to happen here that i didn't know like it's just set dressing right now something needs to happen that teddy 
gets trotted and stand on that teddy and chuck it in. <laughs> that's, that's it's really good advice. Um, so I follow you on all forms of social media. Yay. And you pop up all kinds of different places. And, <laughs> I do. Uh, I, I, you know, for me, I love I love the stuff you do. I love the, your, your take on the world and some of the stuff you put out. <laughs> One you. thing that is a consistent theme that I am yet unsold on, Lindsay, yes. is your love of wrestling. God damn you. How dare you not I embrace just, this? I, I went to watch... I'm going to get all the terminology wrong you here. You are, and, and I'm going to be I'm going to so judge disgusting. you quietly, and then I'll I go to Twitter and we'll talk about you. Raw. Yes. At, I want to say the O2. Yes, probably. Years and years ago, like okay. nine, ten years ago. Okay. John Cena was there. Mm-hmm. Checks out. And it was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. <laughs> I sat on the front row. I could see people saying, after the count of three, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you. I, I could lip read what no. was happening. It was like the wildest thing. But the the thing that I couldn't get over was the thing on the stage is acrobatically amazing. Yes. The um, the atmosphere in the stands was electric. Yes. Like there were people losing their goddamn minds. Yes. But in the middle of it, I was like, this is the eye of the storm. Where I'm the only person <laughs> that knows this is all madness. Oh. What's happening? How did yeah. you fall in love with wrestling? So I've been watching wrestling forever. I started watching it as a little kid, um, sort of 89, 90, maybe a little bit earlier. US. Yeah, it was it was American. So I guess when my nan first got Sky, um, which was a huge deal. I mean, she was like the first fancy person. Sky, oh, I know. No, it was four. such a big deal. <laughs> such a big deal. And there were only like three programs on. And one was Supermarket Sweep and one was wrestling. So like, okay, put it on. I genuinely can't remember how my brother came to it. But he came to it first. And anything my big brother loved, I loved. He was five years old. I was obsessed with him. So anything he wanted, I wanted. So I was watching it with him. And I just loved it. And back then it was the soap opera of it because I didn't know it wasn't real, but it was the soap opera. It was the characters' stories and there were all these beautiful women as valets and managers back then. I don't remember any of the women wrestlers. I don't know if I saw them back at the time, but I just found this drama and the soap opera. And I also used to watch Dallas and Dynasty with my mum. So the two things together were just like a dream come true. Uh, so I stuck with it for a while. And then when my brother went off to uni, I sort of fell out of it because I just lost the habit of watching it and then in my mid-20s so sort of 2004 2005 was working at Harper before I thought I was gonna lose my job um someone asked us I worked in licensed character books so we made all the books for the movies like Shrek and Spider-Man and Fifi and the Flower Top TV show and stuff you know like so many weird things but we made all those books and WWE approached us and said would you be interested in making books uh, it was really big because it goes through cycles. Yeah. It was really big then. And no one knew anything about it. And I said, oh, I, I remember it. So I'll go to the show and see what it's like, see if anyone is actually interested. And I went back to my first show and it was Smackdown Live in Sheffield. And I went with my brother. I took my brother and it was just immense. And we both flipped out and we were like, <laughs> got to scream, you screw Brett at Shawn Michaels. And it was like life goal achieved. And then I just started watching it again. We ended up not doing the books because we couldn't find a way to make it work but they, they got a lifelong fan so it was worth the free <laughs> tickets thanks fellas um yeah I just and I just haven't stopped watching it since and then when I moved to the states it got so much worse because it was so much more accessible because I could watch it every week um and then I used to DVR it if I couldn't watch it and then I would buy all the pay-per-views and now I have the network and now I'm a host on a podcast about wrestling called tights and fights and I love it so much I love it completely and do you, do you get to go to the shows? I do. I go a fair amount. Um, I've been to WrestleMania the sort of last 
six, five, six years. Wow. Yeah, traveled around for Mania, which is hilarious. Uh, it was in New York this year. Last year it was in New Orleans. Been to Texas, been to Florida. Uh, I see a lot of indie wrestling near me. So not the WWE stuff. Um, and yeah, I've been lucky. I've, I've gotten to write about it a few times too. Because uh, that's a weird thing when people know you like a thing. And that yeah. you, they're like, do you want to write about it for this magazine? Like, yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> so then I get to interview the guys too, which is always bonkers. Because they are all, without exception, just the nicest, most polite, genuine, passionate people. Because you've got to really want to do yeah. it. Because it's a hard life and yeah. it's not a given that you're going to make money and it's not a given that you're going to come out of it all in one piece. But they are so passionate about what they do. Yeah. And it's infectious. Yeah, I'm sad that you didn't enjoy it. I'm sad. <laughs> it's, it's not real. I, we know it's no, not real. No, no. But like a Marvel movie's not real. I know, I know. And, that's, and I'm an, an unashamed geek and love so much stuff and I can totally understand the fandom yeah I just when I was there in the midst of it I was like I don't quite I get feel it. like we could get you I feel yeah. like if we got you watching NXT on the network I'm pro- which is I'm... their only hour-long show and it's like the cool indie wrestling I think you'd like NXT so we come to the last thing that I'm going to ask you and then there's the mystery one <laughs> which I should have warned you about but I haven't <laughs> um most important objective or dream Ooh, that's really hard because I am never happy uh, I'm always happy. <laughs> I was going to say I'm never satisfied, but then I was going to start singing Hamilton and no one wants that. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I am someone that it doesn't really matter what I've done or achieved. I find it really hard to that for that to be enough. And that was kind of the way I was brought up and not in a negative. I don't think at the time my family realised they were doing it, but it didn't matter how well I did. It was just very like, well, good. You're supposed to do well at school. Mm. What do you want? Mm. And I even remember, this sounds terrible, but when I got my first book was in the Sunday Times, I got my first Sunday Times bestseller and I was here and I went home, I went all the way back up to Doncaster with a copy of the Sunday Times to show my mom because I was so proud. And she was like, oh, we were going to buy one, but they only had one left at the supermarket. It's a bit doggy and it was like three quid. And I was like, but I was in the Sunday Times. She's like, yeah, well done. Do you want a medal? And I just thought, like, why did I expect this to be different? You know, why did I? Like, I've been in LA too long. I thought this was going to go differently than it's gone. Um, and then I think they, they did have a copy. Like They kept the copy and she kept it. And it went in the drawer with my record. But she kept the copy you'd bought. Yeah, she kept she the copy. She didn't go back to Asda. No, it was dog-eared. <laughs> it was three quid. Um, so I've, I've just always had that sentiment. That, and other people will be like, oh my God, it's amazing what you've achieved. And I'm like, shut up. Because I can't feel it. Like I can't. And I'm working on it on therapy. I'm trying really hard to embrace my successes and my achievements. Um, so yeah, I honestly, it's really hard for me to pick something and say what something is. Because also I, if I got that, I'd want to do another thing. Mm. So like, I'd love to write a script. I'd love to write yeah. a screenplay, um, movie or TV show, whatever. And I don't even know if, I mean, I would love to do it and get it made, but I live in LA now. I see how hard that is. Yeah. Uh, but I would love to do it, to say that I did it, to exercise a different muscle. Like I've loved making podcasts and I never thought that was something I would do. And I absolutely love it. I love writing books. I've just written my first children's work, which I've absolutely loved doing. So yeah, I guess my most important objective is just to keep going yeah i can't imagine not doing what i do whatever that might be at the time because it changes all the time but yeah i can't imagine not doing something amazing that's a great answer um before i let you go the surprise one i'm throwing in most important song i'm going to choose sorrow by the national because there's nothing like going out on a doubter Um, (laughs) because it was recently the anniversary of i went to um an event and installation at ps1 at moma in new york i'm going out pretending to sound cultured where they played 
Sorrow, I think, for four hours. If it was four hours or six hours. I think they just played the same song on a loop for us. They just played it live. And it was this incredible artist's installation. He recorded it. And you can buy the vinyl. I wouldn't recommend sitting down and listening to it in a wanna. Um, <laughs> but it was such... They were a huge band for me. They were my New York band. They were the soundtrack of that. Whenever I need putting in a place that the band I listen to, I can listen to any one of their songs and put myself in any mind state that I need to be in. Um, and I just think they are a remarkable band. Uh, anyway, I love them. Um, but that day, it was a Sunday afternoon. I had two tickets. No one would go with me. It was out in Long Island City. So I'm like, I don't want to go. But I went on my own and I queued up to get in. And I got in and I thought, oh, I'll stay for half an hour, I'll stay for 20 minutes, I'll take a couple of the photos, whatever. Um, and I ended up staying for the whole thing. And it was just... I can't put it into words what it was. It, I mean, that was the point of the exercise was to play it over and over and over and see if it changed and see how the meaning of it changed and how it evolved over time. And I just remember a couple of hours in just bursting into tears. Couldn't even tell you why or if I was upset or not. I just started crying. And then this girl next to me started crying and we just held hands and we just stood there <laughs> holding hands and, and watching them. And then in the next song, the next time they started, the lead singer started crying. And he couldn't finish and he had to turn away and watch the back. And then the whole crowd sang the song, sang the words instead of him. And it was just another one of those moments where it's a feeling. It's not, you can't describe it. There's no words for it. And it was strangers en masse in a space sharing a feeling that they did not intend to feel or know that they could have ever experienced and having it together. And it was just immense it was so overwhelming and then I had to sit down I had to sit cross-legged on the floor and like have a minute um so that song whenever I hear it now it's just because it seems like a really sad self-indulgent song in on the surface if you look at it but then to have heard it change and mean so much to so many people it just is now just encapsulates what you can achieve to me in a song Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, if you have enjoyed this, go right now and listen to The National. Sorry. Yes, please do. Thanks a lot to this week's guest, Lindsay Kelk. Really appreciated Lindsay being on the show. I don't completely get the wrestling thing, um, but, you know, maybe that's on me. I'm going to go and watch some WWE and see if I'm missing something. Coming up next time, Ruben Dangor on Most Important. It's a fascinating conversation where we get to hear about his one-hit wonder his art process, the things that push him on, his big memories that helped shape his life and when he decided to become an artist. So make sure you've subscribed to hear Ruben Dangor on Most Important.